Quick, come up with something funny to say. Hello? Yo. Bork. Oh, that's really cool. Somehow I think you're lying. Uh-huh. Oh, fail. Oh. Bad Philosophy, episode 42B, recorded on August 15th, 2009. Plato's Movie Theater. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, bad philosophy, upsetting the balance of reality, one rabbit trail at a time. We are back for episode 42, and we have a very familiar guest on the show today, Kevin Saunders, coming all the way from his new home at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Hello, Kevin. Hi there. <laughs> Thank you for uh, joining us on the show today. It is actually just the two of us this time, uh, for the first time on A Bad Philosophy, I believe. Kevin and I will be doing something that has uh, never been done before on Bad Philosophy, technically. Well, it has been, but not <laughs> really. <laughs> I guess I should go ahead and, and, and introduce the backstory of this. This is actually episode 42B. For 42 the... and a half. I like Kathleen. Okay, 42, 42 and a half. For the very simple reason that Kevin and I just spent an hour and a half recording episode 42, which was a complete read-through of Plato's Meno, which is a dialogue between uh, Socrates and three other people. Um, as we got to the end, we were in post-show, everything had gone perfectly, and then my Mac crashed. Yes, my Mac <laughs> crashed hard, <laughs> like... Oh, I could listen to you say that all day long. <laughs> like uh, playing into the side of a mountain in a fog bank hard. Um, <laughs> it was it was horrible, and I was distraught and spent half an hour trying to recover the audio, but it was gone, gone, gone away into the uh, into the realm in which uh, the lost episode now lives, and in which episode twenty one now lives as well. So apparently um, every 21 episodes, we're going to just lose one. We should keep that like in mind that. for the future. <laughs> we, we really should. Um, so what Kevin and I are going to do is, is see, we're troopers. Like we, we really, we wanted to give y'all content because after the website being down for so long uh, and, and all the other things that have, that have gone wrong in the last two weeks, we feel like we owe it to you, the fans to do something awesome. And so we are re-recording episode 42, <laughs> or recording episode 42B, or whatever the hell we're doing. We're going to read a portion of Plato's The Republic, uh, book 7. This one's known as The Allegory of the Cave, and it's, it's actually a very famous passage, and uh, you'll soon see why. Uh, we're going to read it in character. Kevin will have a unique accent for the show, and I will mainly be agreeing with him in the tone that you might recognize as Keanu Reeves' character from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Plato. Behold, human beings living in an underground den, which has a mouth open towards the light and reaching all along the den. Here they have been from their childhood and have their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move, and can only see before them, being prevented by the chains from turning around their heads. Above and behind them is a fire blazing at a distance, and between the fire and the prisoners there is a raised way, as you will see. If you look, a low long built along that way, like the screen which a marionette players have in front of them, over which they show the puppets. Oh, I see it! And do you see men passing along the wall, carrying all sorts of vessels and statues and figures of animals made of wood and stone and, and various materials which appear over the wall? Some of them talking, others silent? Oh, you have shown me a strange image. They are strange prisoners, Socrates. 
like ourselves, and they see only by their shadows, or the shadows of one another, which the fire throws on the opposite wall of the cave? True. Oh, how could they see anything but the shadows if they were never allowed to move their heads? And of the objects which are being carried in like manner, they would only see the shadows. Yes. And if they were able to converse with one another, would they not suppose that they were naming what was actually before them? Most definitely. And suppose further that the prison had an echo which came from the other side. Would they not be sure to fancy when one of the passers-by spoke that the voice of which they heard came from the passing shadow? Oh, no question about it. To then, the truth would be literally nothing but shadows of the images. Oh, most definitely. And now look again and see what will naturally follow. If the prisoners are released and disabused of their error, at first when one of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck around and walk and look towards the light, he will suffer sharp pains. The glare will distress him and he will be unable to see the realities of which his former state he had seen in the shadows. And then conceive some one of saying to him that what he saw before was an illusion, but that now, when he is approaching nearer to being and his eyes turn towards more real existence, he has a clearer vision. What will be his reply? And you may further imagine that his instructor is pointing to the objects of the past and requiring him to name them. Will, the, will he not be perplexed? Will he not fancy that the shadows for which he formerly saw are truer than the objects which are now shown to him? Oh, far truer. And if he is compelled to look straight at the light, will he not have a pain in his eyes which will make him turn away to take refuge in objects of vision, which he can see, and which he will conceive to be in reality clearer than the things which are now being shown to him? Oh, th that is definitely true. And suppose once more that he is reluctantly dragged up a steep and rugged ascent, held fast until he is forced into the presence of the sun himself. Is he not likely to be pained and irritated? When he approaches the lights, his eyes will be dazzled, and he will not be able to see anything at all of what are now called realities. Oh, not all in a moment. He will require to grow accustomed to the sight of the upper world. At first, he will see the shadows best, next the reflections of men and other objects in the water, and then the objects themselves. Then he will gaze upon the light of the moon and the stars of the spangled heaven, and he will see the sky and the stars by night better than the sun or the light of the sun by day. Oh, certainly. Last of all, he will be able to be the sun, and not mere reflections of him in the water, but he will see in his own proper place, and not in another, and he will contemplate him as he is. Definitely. He will then proceed to argue that this is, that this is he who gives the season and the years, and is the guardian of all that is in the visible world, and in a certain way the cause of all things which he and his fellows have been accustomed to behold. Oh, certainly. Uh, he would see first the sun, and then the reason about him. And when he remembered his old habitation, and the wisdom of the den and his fellow prisoners, do you not suppose that he would facilitate himself with the change, and pity them? Oh, he definitely would. And if they were in the habit of conferring honors among themselves on those who were the quickest to observe by passing shadows, and to remark which of them went before, and which followed after, and which were together, and, which, and who were therefore best able to draw conclusions as to the future, do you think that he would care for such honors and glories, or envy the possessors of them? Would he not say with Homer, better to be the poor servant of a poor master and to do anything rather than to think as they do and live after their manner? Yes, I, I think that he would rather suffer anything that entertain these false notions and live in this miserable manner. Imagine once more, I said, to such one coming suddenly out of the sun to be replaced in his old situation. Would he not be certain to have his eyes full of darkness? 
Oh, to be sure, so it creates. And the, there were a contest, and he had to compete in measuring the shadows with the prisoners who had never moved out of the den while his sight was still weak, and before his eyes had become steady, and the time which would be needed to acquire the new habit of sight may be very considerable. Would he not be ridiculous? Men would say of him that he went up and down and came without eyes, and that it was better not to even think of ascending, and if, that if one tried to lose another and lead him up to the light, let them only catch the offender as they would want to put him to death. No question about it. This entire allegory you may now append, dear Glaucon, to the previous argument. The prison house is the world of sight, the light of the fire and the sun, and as you will not misapprehend me if you interpret the journey upwards to be the ascent of the soul into the intellectual world, according to my poor belief, which, at your desire, I have expressed, whether rightly or wrongly, God knows. But whether true or false, my opinion is that in the world of knowledge, the idea of good appears last of all, and is seen only with an effort, and when seen is also inferred to be the universal of all things beautiful and right. The parent of light and of the Lord of lights is this visible world. I agree. As, as far as I'm able to, to, like, grasp all of this heavy stuff, Socrates. Moreover, you must not wonder that those who attain to this beatific fusion are unwilling to descend to human affairs, for their souls are ever hastening into the upper world where they desire to dwell, which desire of theirs is very natural, if our allegory may be, may be trusted. Yeah, like, very natural. And is there anything surprising in one who passes from divine contemplations to the evil state of man, misbehaving himself in a ridiculous manner if, while his eyes are blinking and before he has become accustomed to the surrounding darkness, he is compelled to fight in courts of law or in other places about the images of shadows, of images of justice? And is he endeavoring to meet the conception of those who have never yet seen absolute justice? Oh, anything but surprising. Anyone who has common sense will remember that the bewilderments of the eyes are of two kinds and arise from two causes, either from coming out of the light or from going into the light, which is true of the mind's eye. And he who remembers this when he sees anyone whose vision is perplexed and weak will not be too ready to laugh. He will first ask whether that soul of man has come out of the brighter life and is unable to see because being unaccustomed to the dark or having turned from darkness to the day is dazzled by excessive light. And he will count the one happy in his condition and state of being, and he will pity the other. Or, if he have a mind to laugh at the soul which comes from below into the light, there will be more reason in this than in the laugh which greets him who returns from above out of the light into the den. That is a very just distinction, Socrates. But then, if I am right, certain professors of education must be wrong when they say that they can put knowledge into the soul which was not there before like sight into blind eyes. Oh, they do say this. Whereas our argument shows that the power and capacity of learning exists in the soul already, and that just as the eye was unable to turn from darkness to light without the whole body, so too the instrument of knowledge can only by the movement of the whole soul be turned from the world of becoming into that of being, and learn by degrees to endure the sight of being and of the brightest and best of being, or in other words... Of the good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Plato. <laughs> yeah. So. Actually, this actually does tie a little bit to um, what we discussed in Menno as well. Yeah, 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 indeed. With, so, okay. Uh, first impressions, like, wh what did you make of all that, Kevin? Well, I was just reading it. <laughs> I mean, I, I was initially trying to catch the allegory, and, and I want to... I want to read here what um, 
what the host on, on this uh, Washington State University website has to say about this passage. Um, Plato, the most creative and influential of Socrates' disciples, wrote dialogues in which he frequently used the figure of Socrates to espouse his own full-fledged philosophy. In The Republic, Plato sums up his views in an image of ignorant humanity, trapped in the depths and not even aware of its own limited perspective. The rare individual escapes the limitations of that cave, and through a long, torturous intellectual journey discovers a higher realm, a true reality, with a final, almost mystical awareness of goodness, with a capital G, as the origin of everything that exists. Such a person is then best equipped to govern in society, having a knowledge of what is ultimately most worthwhile in life, and not just a knowledge of techniques. But that person will frequently be understood by those ordinary folks back in the cave who haven't shared in the intellectual insight. If he were living today, Plato might replace his rather awkward cave metaphor with a movie theater, with the projector replacing the fire, the film replacing the objects which cast shadows, the shadows of the cave wall with the projected movie on the screen, and the echo with the loudspeakers behind the screen. The essential point is that the prisoners in the cave are not seeing reality, but only a shadowy representation of it. The importance of the allegory lies in Plato's belief that there are invisible truths lying under the apparent surface of things which only the most enlightened can grasp. Used to the world of illusions in the cave, the prisoners at first resist enlightenment as students resist education. But those who can achieve enlightenment deserve to be the leaders and rulers of all the rest. At the end of the passage, Plato expresses another of his favorite ideas, that education is not a process of putting knowledge into empty, empty minds, but of making people realize that which they already know. This notion that truth is somehow embedded in our minds was also powerfully influential for many centuries. Well, that's kind of the, the idea of the Socratic method in general, right? Is, is you're asking people questions to kind, yeah. of, um, to kind of conjure up the, the knowledge that's already within their minds. Um, to make them realize what they already know, but not really put more knowledge in. Well, I, that's, that's what do you think what of that? He, that's what he proposes in the Socratic method is that the knowledge is already there. You have to find a way to get it out. Right. Um, my understanding of the Socratic method is a little bit different in that it's more about um, helping a person figure it out on their own. The, the knowledge wasn't there. You still have to understand things. You have to come to that understanding. You have to create it. Um, and you do this by asking questions is a great way to do it. That doesn't mean the knowledge was there already. That just means it's, it's a different way of teaching. It's not saying yeah. the teaching isn't real. It's well, not telling. It's not saying, you know, this is the way this works. It's saying it, you, you are discovering it, but you're not recalling it as, as Plato said or Socrates said in <laughs> Meadow, so for great. example. Is that you know he said it's you know you're you're just recalling information from a past life or from you know divine inspiration. Well, that's yeah, that's you're, what he says. Like the the truth is is embedded like in the deeper structures of our brain that we we sort of have that in there um, innately. Um, and, and I mean that's a, an idea that we see come up again and again in later philosophy. Um, for instance, uh, Leibniz was was big on the notion that. Um, well, and, and, uh, and I think Descartes, too, were both big on the notion that there were these innate ideas within us. Mm -hmm. um, Descartes, for instance, he tried to show uh, that the existence of God and, and knowledge of, of the proof of the existence of God was innate within us. Um, and doing what's called uh, a priori uh, deduction, you know, taking 
well, here's here's what we know. Here's what we take yeah. to be true. And and he he how boiled do we, it how down. Do we to, that? Yeah. Well, he <laughs> he boiled it down to at, at its most basic level. Um, I you know I think therefore I am. And from that, he was able to to say, well, I know this. I know this with such with such absolute certainty. And and he uses a different term for it that I forget at the moment. But um, when you sort of have that that brute fact knowledge, you know that something is true without having to prove it. Yeah. And he said that he knew that same thing about the existence of God. Now, granted, it's I know kind Dr. of cop out. Tasty. <laughs> well, I that, but that's a much higher level belief, right? I mean, what we're talking about here these these notions of, um, uh, for instance, in, in Meno, Plato goes through geometric demonstrations to kind of show that. Well, look, no, you have these, you understand how this works, but you just don't consciously, you're not consciously thinking about why, and. Um, and he kind of, by asking questions, is able to elicit those, maybe those deeper structures, you know, that, that embedded knowledge within our minds of how triangles work and how squares work and, and the Pythagorean theorem. Um, and if, if I, that's, I don't know. that's there, but those come from a base of something else. That comes from a base of something else. Um, we learn through observation. But if we'd never been taught geometry... Do you think we we would still have those innate notions of like if we if we then saw a triangle would we be able to to kind of figure out that the the sum of the the squares of the two sides was equal to the square of the hypotenuse eventually yeah because the, the thing is and this came up in Meno as well somebody came up with geometry first they they figured it out without knowing that without being taught geometry mm-hmm. they then taught it to someone else the knowledge came from somewhere. Someone figured it out without knowing that, you know, without knowing the proof of Pythagorean's theorem, of which there are hundreds. Yeah. But someone figured that out, and we've since figured out hundreds of proofs for that, you know, thing you said. And <laughs> some, and those were, a lot of times, de- developed independently of each other. Yes. So the, the fact of A squared, B squared, C squared, you know, plus math, works... <laughs> That's, that is a, a true fact, to use a phrase that I really hate. That's a mm. true fact. Well, yeah, because uh, something being a fact, is, it's kind of implicit that it's true. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's a true fact. You can take my word on that. So someone develops these independently. Um, to, to hearken back to whatever episode it was we talked about, um, that really long book, Anathem, there's a brief part yes. where they talk about building something from first principles, and they go, well, that would take a lot of time. And it'd be like, so what? We could do it. And that's true. Through observation, we can discover everything we have about the world. That's how we discover everything. Um, sometimes it just takes longer. Getting back to the cave, uh, Semper Trey in the chat pointed out um, an interesting thing about the, the cave allegory. Yes. It's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you here, Semper Trey. I always thought of it more so as if you grew up thinking that one thing is true, i.e. Santa Claus is real and someone who has gotten out of the stage comes and reveals the truth to you, you're resistant, thinking that they are a true fool, are the true fool. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a big part of the cave. Um, that's the thing I always get out of when I read it, and I've read it two or three times in my life, is that the people with the true knowledge seem crazy. Um, but they're not crazy. But they seem crazy to, to those without the true knowledge. Well, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty deep truth that we tend to kind of group think. Um, for instance, it, the notion that uh, fire was anything other than magic was probably a crazy idea for a very long time. The notion fire that... Is, yeah. Fire is magic. <laughs> magic! 
the notion that uh, that the Earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa was probably a crazy idea for a very long time. But because a large majority of the population held one view, the minority, the outliers, the the um, the few amongst the many were the crazy ones. Yeah. Um, but it says, I don't know. Is, do you think Plato is trying to say something more about truth that that maybe the truth is sort of crazy until it gets out there or? Um, maybe a little bit. What what I see out of this is, and this is something that I've just made up, but intrigues me, mm-hmm. is maybe something kind of the opposite of what is the the uh, the, the topmost method of of what Plato's saying is that there's a real world, and if we don't know as much about it, well, if we know more about it than other people, we'll sound crazy. That's a top thought on it. Yeah. A lower thought on it would be nowhere to go. Crap. Um, kind of a deeper meaning would be that there is a blank spot in my head. Where did it go? <laughs> um, Come on. Come on, chat room. Cheer him on. It was, it was the, the opposite of what I was saying. It was cool. Um, <laughs> oh, man, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> feel free to leave all of this in, Stephen. Yeah, um, I think I will. It'll knock me down a few pegs. Okay, let me think about the cave for a minute. <laughs> Well, well, you mentioned anathem, and that was that was the tie-in that I was going to go to is the the idea of innate notions, especially of um, of geometry and mathematics, came up in the film in the form of the the Highland theoric realm, and kind of how they they had this this term for a place, and and it is a, actually a rather Platonic idea of um, mm-hmm. a, an ideal realm where where um, like the perfect chair exists, or the yes. perfect um, the perfect hand, where these sort of these sort of pure notions, you know, the perfect triangle, where yeah. these sort of pure notions of, of these things exist, and that that everything that we see kind of in our realm is um, a variant a of that perversion, right? Well, a perversion in one way, but but sort of a um, you know a translation into into what we can understand. <laughs> Whenever I thought about that, I was like, well. Is the perfect triangle acute or obtuse? <laughs> Sausages, definitely. Um, you know, is it is it a right triangle? I mean, what what are we talking about? I, what, I would have to say, if it was going to be a triangle, it would probably be a right triangle. Uh, well, sure, but then why why is what makes that any more right than any other kind of triangle? It's in the name for crying out loud. <laughs> it's in our name for it. I'm pretty sure that <laughs> the the perfect triangle has no name for itself. Or if it does have a name for itself, it's just... What about the perfect triangle? <laughs> it, it probably would. It's, it's pretty right, vain. I totally remembered the thing I was going to say about Plato's Republic. As soon as you started okay. talking, I did. Okay, but, go ahead. Um, the thing about living in, in the cave or the movie theater, is, as I'm now going to start thinking about calling it, is that for everyone who is stuck in the movie theater, the reality they lived in was perfectly usable. It was perfectly mm. ser- serviceable. It only became a problem when someone else claimed to have this crazy information about life outside the movie theater and, you know, how bright it was and how fantastic it was. And it's all dark in here and you can't see anything for real <laughs> because it's, but everyone else in the theater thinks they're crazy because they live in this world that they're limited by and it works for them. They, they don't have problems. Man, that wouldn't work for me, man. I, th- I think I'd, I'd get tired of popcorn and Coke after a while. Only because <laughs> you're stuck, you've, you've experienced other things. That's true. If you I guess things in the world, <laughs> popcorn, Coke, and sticky Whoppers. floors, <laughs> um, 
that's all that's all you would ever experience and she wouldn't even be able to contemplate something outside of that other yeah. than other than you know in a purely theoretic sense you know of you know what was there, if there's some other color that we've never thought of like uh Terry Pratchett's octarine the the <laughs> other color like you couldn't possibly imagine what it looks like because you can't because we don't have that in our universe or in our yeah. reality you know, this actually, this was a, a big problem in philosophy of mind, and it actually goes back to a problem um, that uh, I believe Searle came up with. Um, I think that's right. No, Jackson. Jackson. Um, it's the problem of, of Mary. Now, now, Mary is a very special girl. She has spent all of her life living in a room uh, that is completely monochrome, all black and white. Completely black and white, and what she has what she like has that. done is she has studied all of all of completed neuroscience all of all of completed psychology, um, everything about how the brain perceives color uh, that this weird thing called color um, she she has studied one particular color red she has studied what you know red things are um, how kind of where they show up, um, all of the, the neurophysical processes that happen when people see red. And um, so she has all of this knowledge. And one day, she's allowed to go outside of the room, and she sees a rose. Would she, upon seeing the rose, gain new knowledge about what it is like to see red? Or yes. would she already have that knowledge? You, no. you say yes. Okay. I mean, then, then you, would, you would essentially be a, a non-reductive physicalist um, philosopher. I think we've been talking about that before. Right. <laughs> um, because you think that there is, there is that something more, that, that, you know, what it is like. And, um, I mean, maybe, maybe that ties in with what Plato is saying here, because it would seem crazy maybe to her for someone to suggest the notion that there could be anything other than black and white until she actually experienced it. Maybe it would be ridiculous for someone in the movie theater to to conceive of the fact that there was some food other than popcorn if they'd never been out of the movie theater. Mm -hmm. um, but what it, what would Plato's point be in that case? I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, let's go back to the allegory. So, <laughs> um, I guess it would be a crazy notion, right? Yeah. But you know, someone could someone could. Do you think? Do you think someone could come into the theater and convince people only through words, or only like by telling them um, all about this this other food called called a hamburger, uh, and describe you know the the consistency of a hamburger and and the uh, you know what what is made of it's, you know it comes from cows and and You're grain. Me I had rice for this. I'm sorry, man. I just, I just had a thing of chocolate, so it's starting to kick in. Um, but do you, do you think they would be able to come in and, and successfully convince the people in the movie theater that such a thing as a hamburger exists without actually having a hamburger to, to show them and feed them? I think you could convince them that there is such a thing as a theoretic hamburger. Oh, the, the, the ideal hamburger? The, the ideal hamburger. hamburger. I think you could convince them of that. Um, we've seen things like that in lots of places. Um, not that I can come up with any examples, but I, well, I could be convinced. <laughs> you, you can't come up with an example for the perfect hamburger, I don't think, because any any hamburger in our world would be an instantiation of the, the perfect hamburger. I don't know. Five Guys Burgers and Fries have 
come pretty close. Well, they, they closely <laughs> approximate the perfect hamburger, but they, they themselves are not yeah. the perfect hamburger. Yeah, there is that. Merely uh, sub-perfect sub replicas. <laughs> but there are good hamburgers, there are better hamburgers, and there are worse hamburgers. Right, so the insofar as they, approximate, they, as they approximate the ideal one, right? Yeah. So, but that, but by that process of thought, if you could attention, you could asymptotically get closer to the best hamburger, even if we could never achieve it, there is still an asymptote of the world's best hamburger there. Hmm. Perhaps, but getting back to the the idea of, of these Platonic <laughs> ideals, uh, they're, they're not a particularly popular notion nowadays in, in modern philosophy of mind. Can't imagine um, why. Yes. Because think about it, this idea of an actual realm where there's an actual chair and an actual, like, hamburger, you know, just one, the ideal hamburger after which all of ours are based, where does it exist? Like, physically, where does it exist? How does how do those, another dimension? Are, are we mm -hmm. somehow, I mean, that was an anathem. They said basically each one of these, these realms, these world tracks that they're living yeah. in, is closer and closer to this Hylian theory. I actually didn't like that idea. Um, I didn't either because I felt, it's so I felt purely it was counter, Well, I felt it was counter to the idea of the the multiverse that was created in the end of the book with you know variances in hemispace where you pick a different tract. Yeah, that seems very counter to the idea of the Wick theory, which is also prevalent. You know, properly, it's late. Um, <laughs> mentioned in the book. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I didn't like it particularly because it, it would mean that, you know, at some point you would have like perfect triangles, an actual world, you know, physical world with actual physical perfect triangles floating around and, and perfect chair and, uh, well, I guess just one perfect yeah. triangle. Maybe you would have multiple perfect triangles. Like you'd have the perfect equilateral triangle and the perfect right triangle and see, I don't know, because you know what, what, would, what would be what would be the, the perfect spatial... hamburger with lettuce, the perfect hamburger yeah, with lettuce. It seems like it, once you start making these <laughs> distinctions, you can make as as many perfect um, models. The perfect wooden spoon, the perfect wooden spoon with a shorter handle. <laughs> yeah, the, you can make as many perfect models as there are variations in the world. So, um, so this is you know the perfect. Bad Philosophy episode 42 and a half that we've ever had. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> under, under given constraints. And it really trivializes the thing, right? I mean, this, I think this is, the, this, this is why uh, the, the whole idea of, of Platonic ideals isn't terribly popular, because you, get, you just get this multiplicity. Um, you know, it goes back to Occam's razor. Don't multiply beyond uh, necessity. And I think that's what ends up happening when you take the Platonic ideal uh, theory to its natural conclusion. Um, but getting back to to the uh, allegory of the cave here, I, I think it's dealing less with that that notion. And I mean, looking back at the summary, he just mentions that at the very end. But he says that the again that the essential point is that the prisoners, let's say the the, uh, the moviegoers in the movie theater, are not seeing reality, but only a uh, a grainy, pixelated representation of it. Uh, the importance lies in the belief in Plato's belief that there are invisible truths lying under the apparent surface of things, which only the most enlightened can grasp. So, sort of the idea that that truth is illusory. Um, 
sure, some truths are pretty illusory. I mean, looking at um, going back to our, our example of, of the, the sun and, and the earth, um, I'm sure that if I'd never been told, if I just looked at the relative motion of the, the sun and the earth, I would say, of, of course, the sun revolves around the earth. Obviously, I'm perfectly still here on, on my little planet, and the sun's yeah. moving around, stars are moving around, everything else is moving around, but I'm, I'm right where I am. You know, I'm not feeling any acceleration forces on me or anything like that. Um, and yet that's not the truth. Obviously, there's a deeper truth. The, the earth is moving around the sun, the sun's moving around the Milky Way, the Milky Way is moving relative to other galaxies. Um, mm-hmm. But, eh, but we, how far does we that learned go? these through observation. Mm-hmm. Um, we we learned better ways to observe, and and we did have you know competing theories. Someone said, someone probably at one point in time said, you know, wouldn't it be weird if the sun didn't go around the earth, but if the earth went around the sun? And everybody said you're and, and everybody that and crazy. Yeah, everybody said you're crazy. <laughs> but somebody said that, and it came from somewhere, and it was you know one of those random ideas that people have. Mm-hmm. But then someone else said, you know, that would be weird. I wonder what it would be like if that were to happen. And then someone else said, wait, retrograde motion could be explained by doing this. Yes. Retrograde it makes things a lot simpler. Yeah. Retrograde motion is the fact that the planets go backwards in the sky sometimes. Yeah. If you ever look at, at like the, the paths that the planets actually trace, they're, they're crazy, man. It's, it's really I, weird. I like it. But, you know, <laughs> but someone said that and they said, hey, wait a minute. This, this makes more sense. Yeah, it sounds crazy at first, I know, because I see the, the sun go around every day, and that's, that's crazy to think otherwise. But wait, it explains so many other things if that were the case. So it's and all so about we, maybe what's providing the, the better or the simpler explanation. So if, if someone came up to you and, and said, well, look, you know, you, you maybe have the, this grand theory about how the, the movie theater came into existence, right? You know, you've got, like, the, the chairs spontaneously fell from the, the, the dark sky and, you know, lights lights burst out of the walls and all this or you know someone could come in and say well you don't have to to posit like matter coming out of nowhere all of this matter was was here from another you know earlier origin and and some people came in and constructed it and look you know this is why there are nails in the walls and this is why you know the 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 fabric in your seats is tearing and uh all this other stuff yeah um, and it would provide a, a better or a more complete or a simpler explanation for all of these phenomena that people are observing. Um, like how, how people on the screen don't appear as real as uh, folks, as the other people in the movie theater, stuff like that. Um, yeah. All right. I'm, I have to uh, – you made a good point, but there's some stuff going on in the chat that I have to address real quick. So I'm going yeah, to yeah, go ahead. away for just a moment to prove a point to everyone in the chat room. This – is a pipe. Okay. That's all I need to do. Um, they, went, they went off on the, um, the famous painting, which we discussed in episode 42, Real, um, which was, no, what you see is not a pipe, but what I hold is a pipe, hmm. um, which, is, which is confusing. I am holding a pipe. You are not seeing a pipe. Yes, you're seeing a, a representation of... A, yeah. Of an image of, yeah, of light bouncing off of it. Ceci n'est pas un peep. Ceci un peep. It's actually, uh, that's a notion that Kant brought forward, and, and not many people had, had really talked about this beforehand, but he said, you know what? 
you can't actually ever directly observe anything because it's always going to go through your eyes. It's always going to be, you know, light bouncing off of it. And then it's always going to be you thinking about it and, and modeling it in your own head. So, you know, when you talk about what you're seeing, you should really, you should really make the distinction that, no, I'm talking about what I'm modeling. Yeah, um, but I think, I think that's kind of the point of, you know, the, the usable reality. Yeah. Okay, you know, yeah, I'm looking at light beams bouncing into my brain, which are making things happen that are all going whatever, but it's usable. I can pick up this pipe, stuff it with tobacco, and smoke it. And I would do it if I was allowed to smoke in my apartment just to prove a point, but I'm not. Um, but that, that is something that I could theoretically do, whether or not it's a real pipe, whether or not it's made of matter, whether the molecules are touching each other. None of that matters because I can smoke it. Mm-hmm. I, see, I, I almost think that Plato's whole analogy here, his whole allegory, is is an oversimplification because... There's there's never going to be just the the one reality the one actual truth you know below this this uh, illusion surface of shadows or a projector screen. Um, there there's only you know we'll we'll peel off one layer of the onion and then we'll peel off another and another and then we'll realize that we're actually under another layer and nobody's peeled off of us and uh, you know reality is a lot more complicated than just what we see and what actually is. Yeah, but nine times out of ten, it doesn't matter what it actually is because I can get by. Uh, okay, I mean, and that's a pragmatist approach. I, I can appreciate that. Um, and, and really, I mean, it's not practical to be a complete skeptic because really what what someone might glean out of this is, well, you know, you can never, you can never be sure about that you're actually seeing the, the real. You know, you might step out of the movie theater and realize you're actually just sitting in a chair like in the matrix looking at a at a, at a much better movie theater projection or the uh the new better John McClane movie surrogates which is coming out Ooh, in like yes. a two. I'm looking forward to that. Next. Just just a quick background for for folks who haven't seen the trailer. Surrogates is a um is a Bruce Willis film John about McClane. it's sort of a okay fine John McClane whatever. <laughs> Yippee Kaye mother don't mess with me. It's about it's sort of a cross between the Matrix and iRobot. Um, people get these chairs that they sit in, that they jack into with their brains and their input or whatever, and they basically remote control a robot that is a, a perfect reproduction of their bodies. And Except so when they, it's not. Well, yeah, well, maybe a better reproduction of their bodies, it's, not as it's, they are. It's whatever they want it to be. Like Something that's kind of briefly touched on the trailer is it can be anything. Yeah, um, so you're essentially creating, you're essentially controlling an avatar, like in a in a virtual universe, like World of Warcraft or something. Except that avatar is actually walking around in the world, and things go wrong because people start having the ability to die while jacked into these chairs, um, which obviously is is defeats the whole purpose of having the robot because you know if someone mugs you on the street or mugs your robot, you're still in the chair, perfectly fine. And you could just get a new robot. Uh, it's an interesting concept. It feels like I, I want to say it's been done before, um, <laughs> but I can't think of any time that it was done like that explicitly. Uh, but it is. I, I think it's just a rehash of, of some older ideas. I don't know, Kevin. You said you're, you're looking forward to it. I am looking forward to it. Um, it looks interesting. Whether or not it's a rehash of old ideas, I love John McClane movies. Um, and John McClane as a robot seems like it'd be something really cool. 
Mm-hmm. Um, although he spends, actually spends apparently spends a lot of the movie is not a was one, and it's based on a graphic novel, which you know how I am about adaptations, but sure. I'll just you know keep them separate in my mind. Let me let's say this one is not being done explicitly as an adaptation of a graphic novel, like Three Hundred, or even Watchmen. You know, as as maybe like a shot for shot. That is obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But it looks, and it's, and it's going to play with those philosophical issues, right? Of, of, um, of what is me? What, what is the actual reality? Because it's very possible that they may go through the entire movie, and then he'll he'll be like, oh, well, that was an interesting simulation. Well, one, well the thing <laughs> is about the surrogates, it's not it's it's not a simulation necessarily. There really are things out in the world, robots that I there's a robot that I control. Sure, but if they have the ability to to jack in and give people those sort of perceptions remotely. They can create the worlds as well. It's sort of the, you know the Matrix idea. Yeah, they can. If, if it's good enough to do but it at one level, it's cooler if robots that he can hit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because well, no, because part of the thing in the movie is that he gets out of the he gets out of the chair and goes and interacts with the real world, and there really are surrogates out there doing things. Yeah, yeah. So it's I mean, an interesting it's an interesting story the, to to keep it on just the yes. one level of meta rather than than the Matrix, where where some people suggested that the the actual world was just another matrix. <laughs> it would have to be, um, only because they gave Neo superpowers in the quote-unquote real world. Right. Uh, but getting back to, to the original point, kind of trying to wrap things up here, I don't think Plato was, was thinking terribly meta when he wrote this. I think he was, well, he was one of the first guys to even bring up this, this issue in the first place, or at least to write it down. Yeah. Which uh, is all that really any, matters. That's yeah. where credit <laughs> Exactly. Um, because really, hi- history is written by the people who write, write history. history. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tautology, Stephen. We can't be that having was, tautologies on our show. That was supposed to be more profound than, than it came out as. But, um, history is written by people who write history. <gasps> <gasps> no kidding. But it's using like two, two senses of right, so it's not technically a tautology, right? I don't have the right to do this, do I? No. You're the one who gives me crap about tautologies. Now, I don't all right, all right, it, all right, but all right. I'm in favor of them, so. Anyways, um, you know, kudos to Plato. He came up with an interesting dialogue. I, I, I really, you know, going, going kind of a little bit more meta on this, I like how Plato always writes dialogues where everyone's agreeing with his teacher. I kind of wonder yeah. if Plato himself was the guy who was constantly sitting at, at Socrates' feet going, uh-huh, yeah, oh, yes, definitely, you're so right, true, yeah. <laughs> no, see, I don't think that was the case. It was, my guess is that if that were the case, Plato would have written himself in as the guy who was always right. I don't know. If he was an egoist, <laughs> or if he just wanted to, I don't know. I don't think he would have done that. Yeah, who knows? I, yeah. I'm not Plato. Although, yeah. refresh my memory. Did Aristotle come before or after Plato? Uh, before, I believe. It went Aristotle and then like 50, 100 years later, Socrates. And yeah, then Aristotle, Plato. Socrates, Plato. That's what I thought. Yeah. Just, just had to verify, because there is a play that I'm working on called Aristotle Had It Easy. Oh, <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah, just because nobody knew anything before him, so he could just make stuff up. Yeah, I mean, he didn't even have to look inside the mouths of women to to talk about how many teeth they had. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, that's one of those plays. It's really long way off for me, but it involves time travel. I'm looking forward to it, man. Not not sort of like uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure type time travel, is it? Sort of. Aristotle. No. 
It, well, it's, right. it's one of those that I, I really, this is like so back burner, I don't even know what kind of time travel it will have. Ooh. No, okay. Uh, Semper Trey just told me Aristotle was a student of Plato. Wow. Now I look bad. Really? I'm still keeping... I'm keeping with Aristotle had it easy because I got a thing against Aristotle. Oh, okay. No, it was that... Mm, okay. Fine. So it was Socrates, so Plato, Aristotle. Socrates, Socrates came first. But Aristotle talked about everything. Like, he's got books on everything, and I yeah. hate him for that. Physics, metaphysics, philosophy, theater... Well, you know how metaphysics got its name because it, it was just the book he wrote after physics. <laughs> so, well, you got to call it something. It's sort of like um, you know Tolkien writing uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, and then writing after the Fellowship of the Ring <laughs> as the next book in the series, and then yeah. after after the Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> I mean, we we don't really like it when authors do that nowadays. <laughs> Anywho. I think we said about all we, we can say about this. Yeah, well, it's, it's now 12.30 where I am, and I've not reviewed anything today. So. <laughs> no. But it's still 11.30 Central Time, so I it have is. excuses. You, you actually have uh, two more hours until it's, until it's passed on the West Coast, so yeah. you're good. I'm you're actually going to review District 9, Kathleen. Oh, that's good. I do want to get your thoughts on that. But anyways, we'll go ahead and wrap things up on this episode of Bad Philosophy. Uh, Thank you, Kevin, for for staying up late and recording two episodes in the course of an evening. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We we appreciate your tireless devotion to the show. Um, Where can people uh, get those tasty reviews of things every day? YouTube.com slash KevSond. Also follow me at Twitter, Twitter.com slash KevSond, K-E-V-S-A-U-N-D. Cool beans. Uh, you can follow me. I'm uh, twitter.com slash s-torrence. That's S-T-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. And you can follow the show, Bad Philosophy, at twitter.com slash, you guessed it, Bad Philosophy. Well, we thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Oh, God, I'm still recording the video. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop this now, but, you know, thanks everyone if you watched it this far. <laughs> this is like the latest I've been up in the past three days. Epic. It's not the latest I've been up in the last three days, so I'll guarantee well, you that. My my window faces east, and so the sun wakes me up every morning at bright and early, and it's a lot of work to sleep through. <laughs> at bright and early a.m. Oh yeah, mm. half past dawn. Socrates himself was Bad Philosophy is brought to you by Skype Out and by Apple. Check out their offers through the affiliate section of our website. And ready they call the drunken fart, I drink therefore I am. Yes, Socrates himself is particularly missed. A lovely little thing about the bugger when he's pissed. Badphilosophy.com Oh man, I feel like an idiot!